Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. This is where the author of Hebrews recounts those who lived prior to him, who lived uh, in the ages of old, particularly through the Old Testament period, and he describes a, uh, uh, those who lived previous and their faith and how their faith commends them for how they lived. And I just want to draw your attention to one phrase. In verse 4, he, look at it with me, he, he, he speaks of Abel. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. I think there is a unique principle that we can pull from this is that those Christians, those believers who have gone before us, uh, even though they have died, their faith still speaks. And that is what we have endeavor, endeavored to do on these Reformation Sundays. We have sought to speak of the faith of those who have gone before us. And last few years I've done this, we've looked at the life of Martin Luther. Last year was the life of Huldrych Zwingli. And today we are looking at John Calvin, one of the primary figures and pillars of the Reformation. Now some of you may have noticed and some of you may have not that the picture on the screen has been altered. <laughs> this is a merging together that was not done by me of my face with John Calvin's face. And um, this was... <laughs> The occasion of this was for the training center graduation last spring, and they presented all of us trainers with a picture of our face merged with the face of a reformer. I encourage you to find a, a copy to be able to view all the other ones as well. They're quite humorous. Um, but for now, we'll switch to the real image of, uh, of John Calvin so that we don't have to look at that <laughs> strange uh, morphing any longer. Now, John Calvin is often listed or mentioned in the same breath as Luther and Zwingli as key figures of the Reformation, but he was quite different from those other men. Luther and Zwingli, as we've seen, were bold uh, reformers for the faith. They, they went against the flow, and they were vivacious. They, uh, people followed them. They were uh, they were known to fight and to, and to break ground in terms of the Reformation and fighting against the Roman Catholic Church. Zwingli was a, a brawny soldier type. In fact, he died on the battlefield. Luther, even though he uh, wasn't a guy to pick up the sword and run out to battle, he was definitely, uh, we could say, a brash and earthy kind of fighter. Calvin, on the other hand, was self-labeled a timid scholar. He was thin and gaunt in appearance, often only eating one meal a day. He desired not to lead any movement. He didn't want to be a part of a great movement known as the Reformation. He simply wanted to commit to a life of scholarship and to writing. And yet, like Zwingli and Luther, God used him to bring lasting gospel change to Europe and the world, and we are the beneficiaries of God's work through him. Now, even though Calvin did not have a denomination labeled or named after him like Luther did, Calvin indeed left an enduring legacy. He is most probably known for the theological system named after him, Calvinism. Ironically, as we'll see, that name was not given to that theological system until well after he had passed from the scene. But Calvin is a dividing figure. I mean, you just have to mention the term Calvinism to know that, right? Some hate him, seeing him as a vengeful, curmudgeon dictator of Geneva. Others love him as the articulator of Reformed theology. As with all in historical figures, though, it's important that we not look at the caricatures of the people, but that we look at the truths of who they actually were. We don't want a false caricature, and neither do we want an airbrushed portrait. We want the truth. And for our purposes today, I want to show you a Christian man who loved Christ, was used by God to bring about much good for the cause of Christ. 
A quote that will frame our time this morning was uh, noted by historian Timothy George who said that the keynote to Calvin's entire theology, and I would say his life and ministry as well, was this. He sought how God's glory may be kept safe on earth. He sought to see how God's glory might be kept safe upon the earth. And so, this morning I want us to introduce you to the life and ministry of John Calvin. And as we do, I, I, at times I'll pull the car over and we will uh, look at two primary ways that Calvin sought to guard God's glory and keep it safe here on earth. So let's begin by looking at Calvin's life, particularly his early life. John Calvin was born on July 10th, 1509. At this point, Luther and Zwingli are both 25 years old and are well into their theological discoveries. Luther is teaching at Wittenberg, Germany. Zwingli was ministering as a parish priest in Switzerland. And this, this highlights the fact that Calvin was not a part of that initial surge, that initial wave of reformers, but really he came in like a second wave of the Reformation. He needed to take the Reformation to the next phase, as it were, moving it from a fledgling movement to an institutionalized force. Calvin was born in Nyon, France, about 60 miles north of Paris. He had two brothers, two sisters. When he was three, he, his uh, mother passed away, but his father soon remarried. Speaking of his father, he was something like a lawyer or an administrative uh, assistant for the cathedral system there uh, nearby. And, and so as we think about the, the environment, the, the religious environment that Calvin grew up in, it was very much uh, historically Roman Catholic. It was as it had been there in the Catholic France for generations. The Roman Catholic Church was not just one option among many, but it was the dominant church for all Christians, for all people that lived in those lands. If you lived in a Christian country, a Catholic country, there was only one recognized church, and that was the Roman Catholic Church. It was the dominant and exclusive spiritual authority. Europe was considered a Christian land, and even though there were individual monarchs in each country, uh, that there was great political and religious authority that was given, invested in the Pope at Rome. And so John Calvin, along with all the other reformers, grew up in a very Catholic environment. Calvin would say later in his life that in those early years, he was obstinately devoted to superstitions of popery. Popery meaning the, that thing surrounding the Pope. Now through his connection to the local cathedral, Calvin's father arranged for his son John to enter the priesthood. He saw that John was a bright young man and, and believed that he could make a good, a good money, good living, and uh, going into the priesthood. And so at the age of 12, in August of 1521, Calvin was sent to college in Paris. While he was there, he received the traditional classical education of the time, studying rhetoric, logic, and the arts. He also studied the three classic languages of Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Meanwhile, Calvin's father had a falling out with the Roman Catholic Church uh, back in Nyon, uh, which was not necessarily a theological fallout, but was just a business fallout. And uh, so with that, he decided his son should not become a priest and rather should become a theologian, not a theologian, but rather a lawyer, which is a little opposite of Luther, you'll recall. Luther, his father wanted him to become a lawyer, and instead he became a priest. And here it gets flipped around. He also knew that John could probably make more money as a lawyer than as a priest, and so uh, he, at the age of 19, Luther, in 1528, switched from studying law, or from uh, theology, rather, to studying law. Now, even though it may seem like a detour uh, for a man known for his theology to begin studying uh, law, God used this training and skill in law to help establish the fledgling Republic of Geneva in later years. He is going to help establish laws there in the city of Geneva. And so uh, the study and the, and the careful uh, attention that he gave to the law was, came in, uh, you could say, came in handy. The Lord used it later. Now, how many of us could switch from subjects so quickly and easily? 
Study theology, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, the Bible. Okay, never mind. We're going to go over here and study law. And Calvin did it on a dime. He's just had a, a towering intellect. It was hard work, but as one author described him, he was a man of encyclopedic mind, born, he said, to grapple with libraries. That's just like a, a mind that's it's born to grapple with libraries. And whatever subject he undertook to study, he mastered it. Through these years of study, he did not truly believe in Christ, though. He would not consider himself a born-again Christian during these years. He sought to live by the standards of the Catholic Church. And best we can tell, he did not become a true Christian until about 1532 or so. And so let's look now at his conversion. Let's look at Calvin's conversion. As I said, he was committed to Catholic theology, as was all those around him. He didn't question it. But he grew up in a time, again in 1517, Luther nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And so word began to spread about this Lutheran sect, this Lutheran heresy. But Calvin was, was not easily moved. He remained a faithful Catholic. He served God and worshipped him alone. And yet, in the midst of that Catholic faith, he, he did not have any assurance of his salvation. He was taught that he could have assurance if he uh, did enough good deeds to outweigh his bad. And if he prayed to the saints, because the saints would listen to him. And so as he continued to devote himself to these Catholic doctrines, he did not find himself in any better state. He continued to be as miserable in his own conscience. Truly, as he says, the way of salvation was hidden from people. This false doctrine never gave his pricked conscience, guilty conscience, any relief. He felt guilty as if he could not measure up to God's standard, and he despaired of even being right with God at all. And yet in the midst of his terror, the Lord found him. Here's a quote from him. He says, But then a very different form of teaching arose, not one that led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought us back to its fountainhead, to its original purity. Offended by the novelty, I lent an unwilling ear, and at first, I confess, strenuously and passionately resisted it. For such is the firmness or willfulness with which men naturally persist in the course they have once undertaken. It was with the greatest difficulty that I was brought to confess that I had all my life been in error. At last, my mind being prepared to give the matter serious attention, I saw just as if light had broken in upon me, in what a pigsty of error I had wallowed, and how polluted and impure I had become, with great fear and trembling at the misery into which I had fallen, and far more at that which threatened me in the prospect of eternal death, I could do no other than at once go myself to your way, O God, condemning my past life, not without groans and tears." In another place, he described his moment of salvation this way. He says that God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind into a teachable frame. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense, and, uh, with an intense desire to make progress. And so we don't know exactly when this happened. We don't know the exact circumstances in time and history, but he... Uh, at some point, God got a hold of him, and he was born again. And the first evidence that he was born again, that he was converted, was in 1533, in All Saints' Day, exactly 16 years after Luther had nailed the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. And on that day, a close friend and rector of the University of Paris, Nicholas Kopp, preached a sermon to the university faculty that uh, attacked the Catholic theologians. It had the air of that Lutheran heresy in it. And so Cop, Nicholas Cop, was forced to flee the city because there was a warrant out for his arrest. But we know at the exact same time, Calvin also fled the city. And so uh, it is often uh, assumed that Calvin had a part in crafting that speech himself, maybe even writing it. But either way, he had to get out of the city as well. He was lowered out of a window with a bedsheet, dressed as a common workman, and he was now on the run in his home country of France. He fled, actually, to Basel, Switzerland, 
where he wrote in 1535 at the age of 26, the first edition of the work for which he is most well known, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's here in this writing of the, of the Institutes that I want to draw out for us the first way that Calvin, through his life and ministry, was guarding the glory of God. Guarding the glory. And he guarded it, it, first of all, in his doctrine. He guarded it in his doctrine. Originally, this book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, was meant to fit in someone's pocket. It was only composed of six chapters. And it was written... It was somewhat of an apologetic document. It was written to the king of France, who was Catholic, to explain to the Catholic king why there were all these reformed people, all these people that were following a different doctrine in his land. And he wanted to say, listen, king, we're not crazy. We're just trying to follow the Bible. And so he wrote it somewhat as an apologetic to him. Now, it didn't actually change the king's mind as he had wanted it to do, but it actually did something far better. It gave the Church of the Reformation a firm and lasting theology. Indeed, the Institutes of the Christian Religion was, in many senses, the first full systematic theology of the Church, and particularly of the Reformed Church. Historian Timothy George has written this. He says, All in all, Calvin presented more clearly and more masterfully than anyone before him the essentials of Protestant theology. He clearly wrote theology. In fact, Philip Melanchthon, who was the understudy of Luther, called John Calvin simply the theologian. The theologian. And he knew exactly who he was referring to. Who was the theologian? It was Calvin of that day. Now, again, he first wrote this at age 26, merely a year or two after he had come to faith. And... Uh, but over the course of his life, he revised the work. So that what began as six chapters blew to almost 80 chapters by the time he finished. It's arranged in four sections or four books. And even though the, the work looks very different after 23 years because of how big it is, the theology remained the same. Nothing that was foundational to his theology when he first wrote it changed over the course of the 23 years. And so in this, he sought to expound the teaching of the Word of God and implications for the Christian church. And a few doctrines stand out from, to us, and I want you to see the depth of Calvin's love for the Scriptures and for his faithful teaching to God's Word. The first doctrine that we, I want to draw your attention to is man's lostness. Man's lostness. Calvin, in particular, sought to teach the Bible's doctrine on our lostness by using a certain illustration uh, of the labyrinth, the labyrinth. You'll know the labyrinth as a, a maze that someone is stuck in and can't find their way out. They take endless turns and never finding the right escape. And so he taught that mankind is estranged from God, caught in a labyrinth of sin, and cannot find his way out, can't find his way back to God. We don't have a map. We don't have the answer key in and of ourselves. No person can know God by himself without divine revelation. Calvin wrote, Hence arises that boundless, filthy mire of error, wherewith the whole earth was filled and covered, for each man, man's mind is like a labyrinth, so that it is no wonder that individual nations were drawn aside into various falsehoods, and not only this, but individual men almost had their own gods. Elsewhere, he wrote this, he said, Men's conceptions of God are formed not according to the representations he gives of himself, but by the inventions of their presumptuous imaginations. They worship not God, but a figment of their own brains in his stead. And from this, he would go on to say, from this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Mankind in his sin cannot find his way back to God and instead creates idols, substitutes for the true God. And I, Calvin here rightly communicates what the scriptures teach that no one is righteous before God, Romans chapter 3. And no one seeks for God, Paul repeat, quotes from the Old Testament there in Romans 3. We are truly lost in sin if left to ourselves. 
This informs how we think about evangelism, how we think about missions, and might I say, how we think about parenting. That we, on our own, without the word of God, are lost in, in a labyrinth of sin. That leads us to a second doctrine that we can see in his uh, teaching is the, his, his doctrine of scripture or the Bible. His doctrine of the Bible. And his doctrine of the Bible could be summarized this way. The Bible, he believed that the Bible is the inspired word of God revealed in human language and confirmed to the believer by the inner witness of the Spirit. Biographer T.H.L. Parker described the role of the Holy Spirit in Calvin's theology in this way. He said, God, in Calvin's theology, God, in his loving concern for man, reaches out to him where he is wandering, imprisoned in the labyrinth, and gives him through, uh, and gives him the guidance of the Holy Scriptures, which are like a thread leading him through this maze of ignorance to the knowledge of God. The basis of Calvin's theology, therefore, is the belief that through the Bible alone can God be known in his wholeness as the creator, redeemer, and Lord of the world. What is the answer to the labyrinth that mankind is stuck in? It's the, the divine revelation of God's word. Calvin also used the illustration of spectacles or glasses to talk about how God's word illuminates truth for humanity. He wrote this, he said, just as an older, bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful value, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe two words, but with the aid of spectacles will begin to read distinctly. So scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. We're lost in a labyrinth. We, we, we walk around in fogginess and, and blurriness. We can't see the truth, but the word of God comes and lands before us and through the word of God, we can finally see the truth. And here in Calvin's high view of scripture, you can see his reliance on scripture alone. He wrote that those, he wrote strongly against those who sought to know God outside of the scriptures like through creation or conscience or through visions or dreams. He said, we should not allow ourselves to investigate God anywhere but in his sacred word or to form any ideas of him but such as are agreeable to his word or to speak anything concerning him but what is derived from the same word. Friends, this is the doctrine that I mentioned at the start of our service of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our basis for knowing God and Calvin taught that explicitly. But the third doctrine I want to highlight this morning is the centrality of Christ in Calvin's theology. The centrality of Christ. For Calvin, all truth is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in his commentary on Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Paul enters upon a full delineation of Christ. For this was the only remedy for fortifying the Colossians against all the snares by which the false apostles endeavored to entrap them. That is to understand accurately what Christ was. For how is it, he asks, that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines? It is because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us. For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence, he says, there is nothing that Satan so much tries to affect as to call up mists so as to obscure Christ. Because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, he summarizes, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view such as he is with all his blessings that his excellence may be truly perceived. Friends, this, Calvin made it clear that Christ must be put forward before us in order for us to remain true to the scriptures and true to the word of God. We cannot lose Christ. And yet, he says, that is what Satan tries to do, is try to send up mists, he says, a fog to try to obscure Jesus Christ. And that is why men wander into falsehoods. 
is because we don't see Christ. And so Calvin endeavored through his doctrine, through his ministry, through his life, to keep Christ and his glory central. We see it also in his defense of the doctrine of justification. Doctrine of justification was a doctrine that Luther discovered in the New Testament. Didn't create it, he didn't create it, he discovered it in the Bible. And it was upon that doctrine that Luther said the church rises or falls. Biblically, justification is a single act by which God declares sinners uh, righteous by those who trust in Christ's atoning work. But the Catholic Church teaches that justification is a process whereby we do good works to gain righteousness. And thereby they conflate justification and sanctification. Calvin, speaking to the issue of justification, in his letter to a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Cardinal Satellet, we see the issue of Christ's glory in justification and salvation. He writes to this cardinal, he says this, he says, you, in the first place, touch upon justification by faith, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Wherever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. The justification of faith is utterly important because with it, notice, it's not just that doctrine gets distorted, but the glory of Christ is at stake. He's got Christ first in his heart, and that is what concerns him even in his issues of battling out doctrine. He goes on to describe how he directs sinners to trust in Christ for salvation, saying this, the only haven of safety is in the mercy of God as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. As all mankind are in the sight of God, lost sinners, we hold that Christ in their only, is their only righteousness, since by his obedience, he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice, appease the divine anger. By his sacrifice, I already read that. By his blood, washed away our stains. By his cross, bore our curse. And by his death, made satisfaction for us. You see the centrality of Christ in that? We maintain that in this way, man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father by no merit of his own, by no value of works, but by gratuitous mercy. When we embrace Christ by faith and come, as it were, into communion with him, this we term, after the manner of Scripture, the righteousness of faith. Friends, Calvin labored to play, keep Christ central in all that he taught and all that he described. And this is a reminder that we need to recapture for our own day. A reminder from 500 years ago what God already said 2,000 years ago, that our only haven of safety is found in the mercy of God through Christ. Friends, this is our only hope. If you are trapped in sin, as Calvin said, then our only haven of safety is found in Jesus, the only place to which we can turn because you're stuck in a labyrinth and you cannot find your way out. You cannot use your intellect, your reason to try to find your way back to God. To, it's not all paths that lead up the same mountain. There is only one path, there is only one way, and Jesus Christ is that way. So Calvin sought to guard the glory of God through his doctrine by emphasizing these doctrines that are found in the scriptures. So that's the first way we see Calvin guarding God's glory is through his doctrine. But before we look at the second way, I want to pick up the narrative of his life and we'll come to that second um, way in a little bit. We last left Calvin in Basel where he published his institutes in March of 1536. After a quick visit to France, he desired to make his way to Strasbourg, which at the time was a free city in, the, in Strasbourg, the reformer Martin Bucer was actively underway, and Calvin wanted to come alongside him, in, uh, but not in a leadership capacity. He did not see himself as a leader of the Reformation at this point, and even though he's committed to Reformation doctrine, his plan for his life was to simply be a scholar and a writer. He wanted to work exclusively with his pen, hold away in an office somewhere, and just writing to a page and sending things out to a printer. He wrote 
The summit of my wishes was the enjoyment of literary ease with something of a free and honorable station. Calvin wanted literary ease, but the Lord had other plans. Calvin had to learn, as we all do, that our will is not God's will. And in the end, we must submit to God's. It just so happened, call it coincidence, but we like to call it providence, Calvin could not take the main road to Strasbourg. Instead, uh, and the reason why is because there was a war going on, and so he couldn't go in the middle, th middle of a battlefield, so he had to reroute and go south through Geneva. His goal in going to Geneva was to stay the night and continue on his way to Strasbourg. Literary ease was in his sights. But when he got into town, into Geneva, word got around that the author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion had just shown up. And there began to be a murmur causing a stir. And there was a man who was already bringing about reforms in the city of Geneva whose name was William Farrell. Farrell was a fiery man. He was a, a, a provocative man that really was used by God to, to step in and, and begin that work of reformation. But he was not gifted in terms of writing theology or building institutions. He's kind of one of those guys that, that charge into the enemy lines and he defeats them and he goes, okay, now what? And so he needed someone to figure out that now what? And when he heard that Calvin was in town, he go, all right, God, I got my man. He paid him a visit. He urged Calvin, why don't you stay here with me? Let's build, let's continue reforming the church here in, in Geneva. But Calvin initially refused the offer. He goes, uh-uh, I'm looking for literary ease. I'm looking to, uh, to go on. I, I, who are, I'm not looking to be shoved into the limelight. He considered himself shy and nervous. Pharrell, you've misjudged me, he thought. Pharrell was not going to take no easily. And so he rises up and speaks with somewhat of a prophetic force and tells J Calvin, you are simply following your own wishes. And I declare in the name of Almighty God that if you refuse to take part in the Lord's work in this church, God will curse the quiet life that you want for your studies. <laughs> you say, on what authority, Pharrell? But he spoke confidently and Calvin took this to be the voice of the Lord through this servant of Christ. He wrote later of the incident, he said, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course, and I was so stricken with terror that I did not continue my journey. He said, all right, all right, I give up, I'll stay. And so this is how God brought Calvin the Frenchman to live and work in Swiss city of Geneva. When he arrived, the city had about 13,000 residents, modest for that time. In 1535, it had officially become reformed, rejecting the rule of the Pope and forbidding Roman priests from saying Mass. But it was still an immoral city. There was still much work to be done in the church, and so he and Pharrell jumped into the reforming work, but it seems they tried to move too quickly. For only two years into their work, they both were exiled out of Geneva. Calvin landed ironically or providentially, in Strasbourg, the place he wanted to go to begin with. In Strasbourg, Calvin had some of his most happy and uh, peaceful years. There, he pastored a group of French immigrants, French refugees. The Catholic king of France was persecuting believers and they were fleeing the country and they were running to these Swiss cities and so he had about 500 French refugees in his church, an immigrant church of 500 there in Strasbourg. And it's a sweet time of, of pastoral ministry as he preached in French and ministered to these people. One of his biographers, Parker, has noted that it was during these years that he did some of his best writing. He, Parker writes, he was neither hindered by the press of business nor crushed under a burden of troubles as in his later life. In these three years, he gave us the 1539 Latin version of the Institutes, the 1541 French translation of it, and the Epistle to Cardinal Sadoletto and the little treatise on the Lord's Supper. 
each is a masterpiece, he says. If he had died in 1541, he would still be recognized by succeeding ages as one of the greatest Reformed theologian and French stylists. Amazing. This period, though, was made sweeter all, uh, was made all the sweeter by the gift of his wife, Idolette. She was the widow of an Anabaptist turned Reformed under the ministry of Calvin. She had two children, and Calvin and Idolette married in August of 1540. They only had one child together, and... Unfortunately, that son died shortly after birth, which was a great grief to them both. But on top of that grief, their marriage did not last long, only eight and a half years. Idolette died, and upon losing his wife, Calvin wrote the following about his grief. He said, truly, mine is no common source of grief. I've been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one who, had it been so ordained, would have willingly shared not only my property, but even my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the whole course of her illness, but was more anxious about her children than about herself. But even though their marriage was short, you can see that it was a sweet marriage that God blessed. In 1541, one year after they got married, the city of Geneva came to their senses and invited Calvin to return. They realized they needed Calvin and he once again did not want to go. He says, nuh-uh, I went to Geneva once and you guys booted me. I'm not going back to that place. I, I could uh, resist once. I don't know if I can do it again. He says, I would, I would submit to death a hundred times rather than, to rather than to that cross on which I had to daily suffer a thousand deaths in Geneva. Finally, though, he once again saw this as God's will for his life and he consented and he said he did not want to abandon the church in Geneva and he said, when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, I submit my will and affections subdued and held fast to the obedience of God. He returned to Geneva and remained there until his death in 1564 at the age of 55. In Geneva, he was a church statement, statesman, an ecclesiastical politician. He brought about order to the church. He wrote found, founding documents on how the church is to be ordered. Because remember, the church was setting out in a new way. The, the Roman Catholic Church had been set up for one way for so long, and now as the Reformed branch of Christianity, the Protestant branch, they were seeking to go, how are we going to do church? And Calvin was instrumental in writing out what that looks like from the scriptures. He held no political office in the city. The city was governed by two councils. He was not a part of those councils, but he was a leader within the city. He was influential. But note that he was no distant theologian. He was not stuck in his ivory tower, just writing theology and uh, giving edicts to the church. In fact, I found out that his, his brother and, and his wife and family lived with Calvin and so he had little kids running through his house all the time. Uh, one author said that his theology was written in the midst of teething troubles. Uh, he knows what it is to have kids wake up in the middle of the night and all the rest as he ministered there in Geneva. On top of that, he was one, a man with the people. He made pastoral visits. Even during the times of the plague, he would go to those infected. He taught in a theological college. He was raising up and sending out missionaries back to Catholic France. But more than anything, he was engaged in expositing Scripture. And this is the second primary way this morning I want to show that Calvin guarded God's glory in his life and ministry, his preaching and his teaching. Several characteristics here. First is his reverence for the Word. His reverence for the Word. Calvin wrote, We owe to the Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it, was, it has proceeded from him alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. Great reverence. We don't worship the Bible. We worship God, but we have reverence for the scriptures because it comes from the Lord. Elsewhere, he wrote this, the highest proof of scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. This is the voice of God, Calvin believed, and therefore we are to hold it highly and we are to listen to it. 
And it was because of this reverence for the word that he sought it as his aim to expound the word of God to the people. Preachers, he said, are not at liberty to preach their own ideas. He wrote this. He says, when we enter into the pulpit, it is not so that we may introduce our own ideas and dreams. It is so that we may give God's word. And so we see this reverence play out in his method of teaching the word. He said that pastors are to preach the word with an invincible constancy. Invincible constancy. They're to be constant in the drive through the text of the Bible. For this is what people need. They need to hear the voice of God. They don't need to hear the opinions of the pastor. They need to hear the, the convictions and the truth of God. And so the pastor, the preacher, must preach through the scriptures and not deviate from it. And Calvin modeled this through his entire ministry. He preached consecutively through books of the Bible, one after another. He would work phrase by phrase, verse by verse, and then he would go to the next book. He wrote at the end of his life, I have endeavored both in my sermons and also in my writings and commentaries to preach the word purely and chastely and to faithfully interpret his sacred scriptures. And again, he never wavered from this his entire life. He was so committed to expositional preaching, so committed to verse by verse, sequential preaching of the Bible to get this, he was exiled to Strasbourg for three years. When he came back, the first Sunday back in the pulpit, he turned to the next verse that, where he had left off three years previous. He goes, I've got nothing new. I'm going to pick up right what I was doing before this, which is preaching God's word. We see also in his frequency in teaching the Bible. This guy, it's no wonder he died in his 50s because this guy was incredibly prolific. He would preach twice on Sundays, once at, at daybreak and once at about 3 p.m. Those were often both from the New Testament. And sometimes there were psalms in the afternoon, but mostly the New Testament on Sundays. And then every other week, he would preach every weekday morning. And those weekday morning uh, teachings were from the Old Testament. Because of this schedule of preaching so much. He covered vast sections of the Bible, preaching hundreds of sermons for single books. For example, he preached 159 sermons on Job. He preached 200 sermons for Deuteronomy and 353 for Isaiah. And this is just a sampling. Now, how do we know this? And how do we know, how do we have his sermons? Well, he didn't script them. He didn't manuscript like I do, where you can get pretty close to what I say in the pulpit based upon my notes. Calvin didn't do that. He would study, and then he'd walk in with his Bible to the pulpit, and he would teach, expounding phrase by phrase. And so how do you get his expositions? How do we have those? How do we still have them today? It's because of a few French refugees who chose to sit in the front row every time Calvin preached and they took down his sermon shorthand, would then go and write them out longhand and have Calvin edit them and they would go to the printer. The work of those faithful men turning up rain or shine to record Calvin's exposition has benefited millions through the centuries. All those expositions, all those teachings were turned into commentaries, turned into books, he wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible because of what he preached. We see also his conviction to teach the word. His conviction to preach the word was driven by his belief that God's glory was there in the word displayed. It is here in the Bible that we see God's glory, God's majesty on display and therefore as heralds of God's truth we must simply go and present it before the people so that they might see the glory of God. Listen to his exhortation he gave to fellow preachers. He said, let the pastors boldly declare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it from the highest to the lowest, 
Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. Calvin had a passion to give the word of God to God's people because then God's glory would be unleashed upon the saints. Indeed, we see through his preaching and his teaching, Calvin guarding God's glory here on earth and in his life. I want to finish this morning by considering Calvin's legacy. Calvin's legacy. The legacy that this man left to the world is, in one sense, is hard to calculate. Volumes have been written trying to encapsulate all that he influenced, all that he affected by his model of church, uh, by his, all of his writing. There was much that he did and much for future generations to pick apart and to learn from and to model after. I first want to note, maybe in a surprising way, that he left a political legacy. He left a political legacy. There are many nations that owe their existence and the shape of their laws, particularly the civil liberties that are there expressed to Calvin, his Geneva, and his theology. In fact, that's true of our nation. United States of America is downstream in terms of thought and theology from Calvin. Noted Harvard historian George Bancroft has written the following. He said, he that will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. How did liberty make its way into Western thought? It arose largely in the, in the Protestant Reformation and Calvin made a huge contribution to that. It was carried then from Calvin over to England and as we know from England to our shores. And so we owe a lot politically even to the thought of Calvin. But he also left an ecclesiastical legacy, a church legacy. Again, he didn't establish a denomination himself. But during his lifetime, people flocked to Geneva. They wanted to see what God was doing there. In fact, John Knox, who is a man we'll consider in future years, uh, a, a reformer of Scotland, had to flee his land, Scotland, for a time, and he went to, to Calvin's Geneva. And he remarked that city was the most perfect school of Christ that was ever on earth since the day of the apostles. He goes, there's something unique that's going on here. Knox then would return to Scotland and he would found uh, Presbyterianism. And from there, the Presbyterian denominations would sprout. So he left an ecclesiastical legacy. He also left a theological legacy. From Luther, we have Lutheran theology. From Calvin, though, we have Reformed theology. His theological descendants were spread all over Europe, from Switzerland to the Netherlands to England. Now, what is commonly known as Calvin's brainchild or the five points of Calvinism, as I noted at the beginning, was not coined by him. Calvin did not come up with the five points of Calvinism. They were articulated by a group of Dutch theologians in 1619 at the canon, in the canons of Dort. They were drafted in controversy. They're drafted in support, or in response rather, to Jacob Arminius, who you recognize by the name is the father of Arminianism. And his, Arminius's followers, he, they articulated five points that disagreed with Reformed theology. And so these Dutch theologians then sought to take Calvin's theology and the Reformed faith as they understand it from Scripture and articulate it. And they came up with five corresponding points. And so the five points of Calvin were, of Calvinism were a response to the works of, of the followers of Jacob Arminius. But other theological descendants of Calvin were the Puritans of England. I've quoted from Puritans often in my sermons. Those Puritans in England are the descendants of 
Calvin and of Reformed theology. These great men carried Calvin's theology even further and created a great body of literature that remains extremely beneficial and profitable for the church today. But in closing this morning, I want to note that Calvin left a spiritual legacy. And by this, I mean that he has guided Christians ever since by teaching them what really matters in life and eternity. I trust you've been able to pick up our book of the month this month on a little book by Calvin, The Christian Life, in which he gives some great teaching on how we live our lives. But he points our gaze to the glory of God and he asks, based upon God's glory, why would we want anything else? And with that, let me close with one final quotation for you this morning. Calvin writes this. Let us know for the third, this was in a, a sermon he preached, that God is not satisfied with rewarding us in this world, but he sets before us something much more excellent, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. Seeing then that he wishes us to pass through this world in order to come to him and to enjoy forever his glory and everlasting blessedness, which he has bought for us so dearly by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, is it not proper that each of us should apply himself wholly to that? And then, are we held fast in this world by visible things? When we compare the heavenly life with all that is desirable in this world, I ask you, although the honors, the riches, the goods, the delights, and all those things in which men devote themselves are pleasing to us, must they not become like dung and refuse when we are concerned with the glory of God? Friends, may our hearts so be shaped that we can look at all the things of this world and see them as dung and refuse in light of the glory of God. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the work that you have given, for the faith that you exhibited in John Calvin through the years. Thank you, Father, for so using him to help bring about the Reformation. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to so stand strong in our day that we would seek to be faithful to the scriptures, seek to keep the glory of God before us, that we would not be attracted and wowed by the things of this world, seeking to distort and be distracted by all this world has to offer. Father, may we be faithful in our own day that we might be able to say that we have sought to guard the glory of God in our lives personally, in our ministries as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.